I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two segments this week, three guests. Uh, totally enjoyed both of these uh, quite a lot. First up, Jim Trotter, a reporter for NFL Media, longtime NFL writer, my former colleague at Sports Illustrated, and Jane McManus, the director of the Marist Center for Sports Communication, former ESPN writer and longtime sports journalist as well, one of my favorite people in the business. We had a great discussion on uh, how to cover the Super Bowl, how to make yourself a little bit different. And then we got really into the Brian Flores class action discrimination suit against the league, as well as the allegations and testimony of uh, former Washington Commanders employees uh, regarding workplace misconduct and just how those stories have been covered by uh, multiple outlets. So Jim Trotter and Jane McManus are always great to have on. Finish up with Chris Herring, a Sports Illustrated senior writer. He is the New York Times bestseller of Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. We get into why that team just continues to resonate, why people are always fascinated with those 1990s Knicks, the Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason, Patrick Ewing, John Starks, etc. How things might be different had they beaten the Rockets covering NBA trade deadline week. And then Chris is very unique in that he's worked with Sports Illustrated, ESPN, 538, and the Wall Street Journal. A young guy. He's already worked at all these really interesting outlets, and he gives us a little bit of insight into what it's been like to work for those places. So Jim Trotter and Jane McManus to start, followed up by Chris Herring on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I bring in my uh, first two guests. I know both of these people for a long, long time, worked with one for a long time. Actually, I worked with both because Jay McManus and I um, obviously taught together. But Jim Trotter is a reporter for NFL Media. He's a longtime NFL writer, one of my favorite colleagues when we worked together at Sports Illustrated. Jay McManus is the director of, the, of Maris's Center for Sports Communication, Previous to that, obviously worked at ESPN, where you probably recognized your byline, and then other newspapers around the uh, New York area. Jim and Jane, thank you for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to start with you, Jim. As I'm talking to you, you're in a Los Angeles uh, hotel room covering the Super Bowl. And a lot of people who are listening to this, obviously, will never get that opportunity. They've probably uh, watched Super Bowls for sure, but they've never covered it. So I just I want to just sort of start again. It's a very very wide open question, and you can sort of take it wherever you want. But um, like, is covering the Super Bowl fun? And what is your approach to this week when you are part of you know ten thousand other media people trying to sort of separate yourself a little bit when it comes to your content and and what kind of stories you want to bring to to your readers and viewers. I think it's more fun when you're younger and it's new and fresh to you as as you get older. Uh, let me speak for myself. As I get older, I don't enjoy crowds. Um, and particularly in this COVID world we live in now where you don't have access to players. You know, you have to kind of take whoever they give you on a Zoom call. 
it makes it less enjoyable because the stories are not as organic. You can't get to everyone you need to to kind of provide depth uh, for whatever it is you may be working on. So, um, you know, to some, some will take that as grousing about a great assignment or whatever, but that's not. I'm just trying to be honest with you from a standpoint. I approach the Super Bowl as work. I don't, I don't approach it as, as um, a chance to party. And there are many parties, as we know, and you're invited to a lot of different things. But typically my day, and I'm being as frank with you as possible, is whatever the story is or whatever my assignments is during the day, I kind of work on that. And by the evening, I'm in my hotel room and either try and get a workout in or, you know, meet with a few friends for maybe dinner or something like that. And that's the extent of it. I used to, I'll tell you this and I'll let Jane go. I used to, uh, there was a point pre-COVID where I would spend my Saturday nights before the Super Bowl in a movie theater. I would go by myself and just sit and watch a movie to, to get away from the crowds and the noise and all of that. But obviously that's much more difficult in today's world. That's interesting, Jay, because, um, you know, I've, I've covered, I think I've covered two Super Bowls. And Jim is right. Like, in addition to obviously all the work that you do, like what I remember is like, oh, there's a flyer for a Maxim party. Here's a flyer for a Playboy party. Here's a flyer for an ESPN party. My sense of Sports Illustrated probably had a party. Maybe I went to it. I don't even remember. Um, so it's a really interesting concoction here in that the media has a uh, sports media has a job to do in that they're covering the game. But at the same time, there's all these ancillary things within the city. And the NFL did this for a reason, right? This is why this whole game started. It was a reason to bring the media core to a warm weather place for a week where everybody can get together and write about the league, obviously, and publicize the league, but at the same time, you know, do fun things. You, I, I know you've covered, I don't know if you covered, Jane, anything specific to a team because you were covering the Jets, but you must have covered, you have covered a couple of Super Bowls, right? As a, like a national writer, so to speak. Yeah, I've covered five Super Bowls. Um, Part of the job is if you have a radio show, you go down to Radio Row and you're set up there. And that's kind of a place where they can bring in all of the, you know, the different players and coaches, and not just the ones who are in the game and, and really not the ones who are in the game, but other players from the league, other coaches, anybody with a book to write personalities, you're going to see just random celebrities like Hugh Jackman was there one year. I remember promoting, you know, some Wolverine thing and, um, yeah. So it's that. And and it really is. It's like a, you know, it's like you're working 18 hours a day because I think a lot of times um, a, an approach can be that, you know, you go to as many events outside of the regular media availabilities just so that you can run into people, talk to people, have those casual conversations that lead to story ideas or pieces of information that you wouldn't be able to find otherwise. I know that things are more challenging now in COVID, but that was a big part of the Super Bowl. And then, you know, there are also, there are a lot of things that are ancillary. You have the, you know, the NFL fan experience is always going on. And then you also have like Concussion Legacy Foundation will put on a CTE workshop for reporters, which are not all that well attended generally, but but provide really good information on, on different things and are ways to kind of discuss off the field issues. And usually the NFL has had women's symposiums. There are a lot of things. Um, the NFL Players Association invites a lot of players in for parties and for meetings. Um, you'll meet player wives. They have some meetings. Like there are really a lot of other things that are going on and ways for you to meet people and make contacts with for stories that can, you know, pay off for years to come. 
Jim, um, you know, Jane mentioned a couple of the things that happened during Super Bowl week that are not specific to the two teams. Uh, you know, she mentioned there are symposiums that happen sort of, you know, we, we, around the uh, the city that the league exists in. The league is obviously going to do its own initiatives. And that's a pretty good segue to some of the issues that are going on right now in the NFL. And I, um, and I wonder if you can provide perspective because you've obviously covered this stuff a lot. If you're covering the Super Bowl, how do you navigate between writing stories? Let's just use this one, for instance. How do you navigate between writing stories about the Bengals and the Rams, which are really interesting teams and have had an interesting journey to the Super Bowl, with reporting on Brian Flores's lawsuit? And there's also obviously the misconduct allegations, the workplace misconduct allegations uh, regarding the Washington commander. So it's like this interesting to me, like navigation of you, you, you got to cover the game most likely for your employer. People are interested in Joe Burrow and um, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Rob and Matt Stafford, et cetera. But at the same time, you have these large NFL issues that, that are sort of with us as well. So you as a reporter, how do you navigate all these things? Well, the truth is that a lot of it d- depends on what your role is for your employer. Um, and then a lot of it depends on what your employer wants. You know, I always say this when we when people look at us, either our byline or they look at us when we are on camera and think that we have all the power. And the truth is we answer to people. And so I have an editor who I have to run stories by. And if they say they're not interested, I don't have the power to say you're going to run it regardless. Or if I'm a broadcaster, um, the people in the glass offices often determine what's going to be covered and what's not, what's going to be discussed and what's not. So um, for me now in the role I'm in now, fortunately, I've I've paid my dues enough where I have have more um, leverage in terms of saying, no, this is what I want to write about and and I get to do it. Uh, For me, it's... I'll do a couple of stories about the teams that are involved, but then there are larger issues, as you talked about, that I also want to address. And I know that I have the platform to do it either through the written word or through television during the hits that I'm doing. And I take advantage of those opportunities. So this week, for instance, I'm doing one uh, feature on the Rams, one feature on the Bengals. I'm doing a story about, you know, the scarcity of black coaches, head coaches in the NFL And I'm doing another story about the legacy of Kenny Washington, who, you know, reintegrated the modern NFL back in 1946. So I get to touch on a lot of different things based on the fact of of being a quote unquote national NFL writer slash columnist. Jay, before I get to you, I just want to follow up one thing with Jim. Jim, you're in a uh, sort of an interesting position as someone who works for NFL media because there are stories that are existing, I just mentioned too, that are not very flattering for the league, to, to be blunt. Certainly uh, in the case of Washington, far less flattering for the owner uh, of that team, Dan Snyder. And then as, and I've learned this from you actually to sort of distinguish this between when you're trying to be critical of the league or critical of the owners, which is which is a two different things. So when, when you're writing and you're doing these on-air hits, Jim, regarding these stories, um, I don't want to ask if you have to pull punches, but is there a line that you have to navigate because ultimately you are working for NFL media? No, I, me personally, and again, this is just me. Everybody may have a different way they do it. 
I don't let that come into my head who my employer is. As a journalist, I have a job to do. I have a story to tell. I have information to provide. And so whatever I report or whatever I write about, I write about it from that perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that when I submit it, if it's a written piece, that all of a sudden folks above me have some are a little more cautious on some things or might want to reframe it another way. But for me personally, no, I, I don't I don't care whether it's NFL.com or ESPN.com or SI.com, you know, um, it's going to be the same for me. I only know one way to do it. And the minute you start letting that creep into what you do, I feel you've cheated your reader. You've cheated your audience. And I, I, I just refuse to do that. And I'm sure at some point it's going to get me into trouble. And I'm OK with that. But I just feel that that's our role. That's our purpose as journalists is to be truth tellers and to speak truth to power and to be the conduit, you know, um, for our audience out there. And, and as long as I'm in this business, that's the way I'm going to do it. Jen, I want to ask you about the Brian Flores uh, lawsuit and the reporting. Um, I was struck, I have to be honest, I, I did write this. I, I was struck by ESPN's coverage of it when it broke because I thought they did a really, really good job. They were candid, the forthright. I think it really broke during NFL Live. And they didn't whitewash like they at least the 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 former players who were on air, Marcus Spears, Ryan Clark in particular, um, I thought were really candid and interesting. Again, the the network itself really pushed the story pretty hard. And I was impressed by that because I, I have to be honest, I, I'm always and maybe cynical is not even the right word here because it probably goes beyond that. I just I, I at the end of the day, I know all these people are in business with each other and it and, and the the. ESPNs and NBCs and Foxes, they pay a ton of money to ultimately promote this product. And the promotion of the product ultimately makes these companies money. Like they're all in business together. Like we all know that. And so I was impressed by ESPN and we'll see if they continue this, but at least on that one day I was. From your perspective, Jane, particularly with the Brian Flores lawsuit, which to me is really a significant moment in sports history, how have you processed the reporting that you've read and, and saw? Well, I, I think ESPN does a great job covering breaking news. And when you, I mean, I, I watched what you watched too, which was the live coverage. And, and I thought, you know, those analysts had obviously put a lot of thought into this. This is an issue, black coaches in the NFL, that if you are a former player in the NFL and you are a, a black man who played in the NFL, you are very aware of, this is not a secret to you. You have probably seen, um, you know, position coaches that you had that didn't, that reached a ceiling and didn't go anywhere and never got a head coaching job. You've probably, you know, wondered whether or not you could aspire to be a coach uh, given the current conditions and just the reality of the numbers. When you talk about percentage of black players in the NFL and then percentage of black coaches in the NFL. Um, so they are not strangers to this issue. And so I thought they did a really good job covering the breaking news aspect of this. Um couple things that I, you know, I'd want to watch, like, how is ESPN going to cover this in six months? Do they watch this story? And then, and then what? Because I think we've seen with, with a number of issues that, you know, you cover the breaking news and then kind of wait for things to die down. And 
there isn't a lot, you know, there isn't always follow-up reporting, a real a real passion for investigative reporting around those issues after they've died down. So that is one place where I think, you know, that I'd like to see the story remain, you know, there are fewer black coaches now than there were when, you know, right after the Rooney rule was put in. So this is something that doesn't go away. And that's a, you know, that's a 17 year span. Like this story, you don't, you can't cover the story when the Rooney rule is, it was, is implemented and then step back and, you know, and not covered anymore. These things need attention and ongoing attention. And I think, I think there continue to be stories just like so many other things, you know, we've seen from what happened with the Washington football team, that the story of harassment and abuse in the NFL did not go away when the Ray Rice story died down. And so I, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for doing that kind of coverage either on an ongoing basis. And unfortunately it is an ongoing story in the NFL. So I'd be curious about that. The other thing and the third thing, and then I, I'll let you guys talk again. Um, the third thing is, uh, you know, this piece in the Flores suit about potentially being being offered $100,000 to throw a game is, is devastating. Yeah. And, and I, I hate to say it's been undercovered because it has been covered. But I think when you have in the day and age where you have um, sports betting is legal in this country and you have cryptocurrencies that this kind of thing could and be you, and you have and you have owners who are partners in gambling sites correct this a hundred percent great, great and point this to me i know we spoke you know at the new year about what are some of the stories that we expect to see and i i'd made the prediction that there was going to be a, a huge gambling scandal and I mean, I look at something like this happening, and I don't think Flores puts that in the lawsuit unless he has receipts. He has to know the world is going to be looking and seeing this. So I'd be very interested to see how that pans out. And uh, that, to me, could be devastating for this league on a number of different levels. The credibility of the NFL, you, you know, you do not have relegation in this league. So um, there are, you know, you, you can lose and, and keep winning financially. So there are a lot of issues I think this brings up. No, that's great. But I actually think it's been undercovered, uh, to be honest. That that element of the story, because it does get into so many different places. And as Jim just said, like the league is partners with the multiple sports gambling companies, if you want to the broad company. And so the notion somehow that the the fix could be in is it's mind blowing how how the the ramifications of that. Jim, I, I want to ask you one thing about Brian Flores uh, because – and I, I hate to be so negative about this, but my immediate instinct thinks that he's never going to coach in the league again uh, unless somehow they come up with some kind of settlement and maybe the, 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 the settlement is he gets hired somewhere. But we've seen this with Kaepernick. We've seen this with Kurt Flood. We, there's, there, are, there are so many examples of, of people within athletics – who essentially gave up their careers for a, a, a larger conversation or a larger principle. Um, my guess is, as Jane just sort of said, like if the receipts exists, I am sure the NFL is going to try to settle because it would be insane to obviously try to get that publicity out there. Um, you know, you've written about, uh, you've written about black coaches and, and people of color in the league for a long, long time. Do you have any kind of uh, forecast as to where you think this Flores lawsuit will ultimately end up? No, part of the the premise of the piece that I'm writing is, to me, there is there is 
really only one way we're going to know whether or not this is simply a moment that grabs headlines or a movement that produces substantive change. And that's if more coaches join him, more executives join him. And to this point, and I've talked with many high-profile Black coaches privately who don't want to go on the record yet about this, and they, as of today, still are not certain whether or not they will join him. I do have one retired Black coach on the record who wanted to speak on the record who tells his story of actually walking away from the NFL after more than 20 years in coaching, um, after coaching some of the greatest players at his position as a position coach, after being an offensive coordinator, who never got an opportunity to interview for a head coaching job and decided that the mental toll that it was taking on him was so great and the systemic racism was so deep in the NFL that he said for his own good, he had to walk away. And this was a decade ago, and it still stays with him. And that's part of the, of the story that I'm writing, too, is that for all these people who think, well, you just leave the game and it's over, it stays with these men, you know, who feel like they have not gotten the opportunities that they deserve. And then you have a guy like Sherm Lewis, Sherman Lewis, who um, back in the day was the offensive coordinator with Mike Holmgren and the Green Bay Packers. And black man, um, very bright, very qualified, who never got an interview. And yet off of that Packers staff, you had quality control guys who went on to get head coaching jobs. But you had all white, John Gruden, Andy Reid, Steve Mariucci, um, Mike Sherman, Marty Morningwig. All of these guys were under Sherm Lewis. And all of those guys got head coaching opportunities and he never did. And even Mike Holmgren to this day says he doesn't understand how that happened or why that happened. I called Sherm, I can't tell you how many times last year before the Super Bowl when I was writing on Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich, and he never returned my call. And friends of his who talked to him stay in touch with him when I ask them, why won't he return my calls? And they said, probably because it's too painful. So for all these people who think that this just goes away when these men leave the league, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think that that's underreported. Well, you have to think, Jim, your, your storytelling on this is incredible, by the way. Just have to point that Thank out. You. But, but the, you have to think, what is in it for them to talk about this? It does nothing to enhance their legacy. It doesn't give somebody else an opportunity necessarily. All it does is it kind of, uh, you, the backlash would be intense. You'd be frozen out of social circles. Like all of the, you have to think about what does, and that's why what Brian Flores has done is so extraordinary because the cost is immense, as we know, because you've seen people just get completely cut out of the league for speaking outside of the orthodoxy. Um, and, and I just think, you know, Hugh Jackson even went, uh, has been on the cables a couple, you know, the last couple of days, I think I saw him once, but you know, you're right. There, there does need to be a chorus here because anybody outside looking in can see it. It's, it's such an obvious exclusion. These coaches not being able to get these, these looks. But they don't, what they, what they don't see is, is the lingering effect. And, and it's hard to tell that story because, you know, a lot of times you have people who say, oh, they're just, they're just um, sour grapes. They didn't get a job. 
you know, or whatever. And, and, I, and again, I'm telling you this from having, this is before I even started writing this, just having personal conversations with these men. You see and you hear the pain in their voice. And that's why I say to this day, you know, my sole purpose in this business now is to try and provide a platform for these people who either don't have a voice or did not have a voice because, and I'm watching my language, but this stuff is real. You know, this stuff is real. And at a time where the NFL talks about the importance of mental health and whatnot, I don't think these owners realize the damage that they are doing to these men psychologically by the way that they are treating them. I really don't. I don't, or, or if they do know it, they just don't care. And I'm not sure either one of those explanations is satisfactory. Jane, um, where does your, uh, where does your faith index stand in terms of the misconduct allegations regarding the Washington franchise and what will ultimately come of that? And let me give a shout out just very quickly to the Washington Post. Those reporters have been on this like for such a long time, Will Hobson, Liz Clark, and I'm probably missing others, but like they've really kept this story going and they've got obviously great sources. Certainly the women who are part of this lawsuit obviously goes without saying um, respect to them, but like the, the post like has invested in it and like they've kept this story alive in, in many ways. I'm not saying other organizations wouldn't have kept reporting on it, but like when the Washington Post makes a decision to do this, like it stays in the public and it's probably a big reason why the, um, the house like, d- d- like sort of saw this, you know, let's, let's be honest. Like the Congress people often react based on, uh, public pressure or pressure from the media. I am sure people were reading these Washington Post stories who work in the government and realized that like, we got to do something about this. And so, well, you, know, you saw give Congress, me a, Congresswoman Spire called it a cover. Exactly. Yeah, co- exactly. So like, you know, the, and the reality is like, you know, I know Roger Goodell and, and, and Dan Snyder don't like when local papers say something. Now imagine like a congressperson says that publicly. So it gives me more hope that, you know, the, this won't be disappeared, so to speak. At the same time, like uh, Dan Snyder has, there's been no ramifications for Dan Snyder. Uh, you know, this is not a Donald, Donald Sterling situation. The guy's still running the team. I mean, the whole like, whatever the dollar figure fine was, that's a joke. That's like me, you, and Jim being charged 20 bucks or something. It's It doesn't matter. Not even that. Yeah, exactly. So like, I don't know. I, mean, I hate to be cynical about this, but like, I don't know where I stand in terms of what I think is going to happen. Do you have a do you have a sense? Uh, well, I think the NFL is is a is like a rubber band. It'll absorb whatever comes at it. It'll seem to have changed shape, and then it snaps back as soon as the spotlight is off. Um, yeah, I, I want to reiterate also what you just said about the Washington Post. Here is a sports section that covers sports like journalism should cover sports, not just like somebody who has a betting app is covering sports or a broadcaster and rights holder is covering sports. They actually have that old school mentality and it shows by, you know, breaking these stories they cover they cover sports like sports but they also are not afraid to break unflattering stories about the teams that they cover and i think that's you see that less and less even with those you know um larger sections now and so it's it's really it's it's really gratifying to see this kind of journalism being done there um what i will say also is that these stories about an investigation being done having people sign ndas and then burying the story because dan snyder has to agree before you release the report and then using 
those women who have signed NDAs or not and saying, well, they don't want this report to get out and having to have their lawyer come forward and say, no, 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 they do. They want the report to come out. They want this in the light of day. Uh, Roger Goodell used those women like a human shield, and that is absolutely disgraceful. So I have no faith in that. And the other thing is, a couple of days ago, Goodell then announces that they're going to look into the whole black coaching issue with an independent counsel. And this is after having an independent counsel look into the harassment claims with the Washington football team and then not release them. So I would be very curious, and anybody going to the Super Bowl who wants to ask a question might ask whether or not the findings from this independent report looking into systemic racism in the NFL are going to be publicly released, if that information will ever see the light of day. Um, because I don't have any faith that the NFL uh, wants any of this stuff to come to light. I think they're just waiting for the spotlight to move on so they can snap back into shape. All right. I want to, uh, I want to sort of shift back to the Super Bowl a little bit. We'll sort of finish up with this. And thank you both for, for answering those questions uh, with such uh, um, you know, passion as, as well as intellect. Jim, the, the covering the Super Bowl is always interesting to me for many reasons, but sort of as a media observer, it's just the sheer number of media people who are there from just both domestically as well as globally. It's a little tricky to ask you and Jane these questions because you guys are, are, for lack of a better word, national voices, national writers. But can you just give my listeners a sense of like, like how, what are the challenges of trying to get something different during this week when you have the sheer number of reporters and writers who are there and broadcasters, et cetera, not to mention, and we talked a little bit about this before we went on the air, not to mention the insiders in the sport, people like Adam Schefter, they're so wired and connected that they seem to get all the big news first. So how do you, you know, if you're like a reporter from the Des Moines Register and you want to just try to separate yourself a little bit from the fray, like how, how do you do that with 10,000 other people, you know, sort of there with you? Me personally, I think it's all in the preparation. Like a lot of the legwork on things that I'll do are, are, is done before I ever get to the site of the Super Bowl. So you want to get as far away from the individual that you're writing about um, so that maybe you get a fresher perspective from someone whose voice we haven't heard yet. You know, and that's why you'll see people go to family members. That's why you'll see people go to friends um, go back to hometowns, those sorts of things. Cause you're, you're, by the time you get to a Super Bowl, even in a non pandemic year where you actually have access to players, as you guys know, the podiums that they put up, the lecterns that they put up, there's so many people around them. You're shouting just hopefully to get one question answered. And so the idea that you're going to, going to go in depth with, you know, a Tom Brady or a Jalen Ramsey or whomever. Um, it's crazy. So for me personally, I just try, I try and get a lot of the legwork done before I ever get to the, the site of the Super Bowl. And that hopefully that way I have something that, that will be different from the quotes that are going to be put out during the week. What about you, Jane? Yeah, for me, um, I would always try to find something that was happening around the main event. So like when players would be, I remember in 2014, players were being brought to the podium. I went into the Seattle locker room you know, got some some great anecdotes and video um, out of that celebration. Like, so there are ways and then trying to kind of present that, you know, this you could do that and trying to package it for social media in different ways so that people could real time 
kind of have a window into what was happening. So for me, it's always been, um, you know, I want to gather string for bigger picture stories that can be done throughout the year. Um, And then trying to find things kind of outside of that main venue um, for storytelling purposes. And, you know, it was tough because ESPN is such a, when I was at ESPN, I did a lot of this coverage and it's such a large operation that, um, and I was working for ESPNW. So I was able to do some kind of storytelling and column writing for ESPNW that was a little bit different from what was being done by the main site. But you really are a cog in a large wheel when you're part of a large group like that. I almost think in some ways it's easier to be kind of a local writer who's going there to cover like, you know, a backup safety use in the Super Bowl for the first time, because you really can get access to those folks um, and sit down and talk to them for a while because they don't have the same throng around them as, as like, a you know, a Tom Brady would in the, in his years. Those guys love it, man. When you get the backup offensive linemen and they're like sitting up in the stands by themselves and no one's talking to them and you can go up and they give you everything. And truthfully, you know, Richard, that's what I miss about um, us being in this pandemic era is that you can't go to the third string tackle and say, tell me about Matthew Stafford or, you know, what are your favorite stories from practice about him that we on the outside don't know or whatever? You can't do that now. And so I feel like our writing is very limited compared to previous years where we could get that kind of access. All right, Jim, let's finish up with this. The NFL viewership numbers have been fantastic this year. They're up from 2020. They're, depending on the network, either up from 2019 or flat. And by the way, if you're flat with 2019, to me, that's the new up. Seems like the game is in a really great position where it comes to interest. And I would expect big numbers for the Super Bowl. What about you? Oh, absolutely. Um, Look, the NFL, regardless of what we say about the issues that it has and whatnot, I always say this, that um, we're like Pavlov's dogs. That when that whistle blows, we come running, you know, for these games. And the Super Bowl is no exception because the Super Bowl is not just a game. As you know, it's an event. And even this year, you know, people talk as much about what's the halftime entertainment going to be like as much as they talk about what's the game going to be like. So I expect big numbers. You've got a new stadium. You're back in L.A. Um, You've got these interesting storylines, particularly among the two quarterbacks. So there's there, there'll be a lot of interest. Even my wife, who who at best is now a casual NFL fan who doesn't have appointment viewing or any of that. It's like if it's on, she'll watch it. Otherwise, no big deal is uh, is is somewhat bothered that she's not going to be able to watch the game live on Sunday because our oldest daughter is having a fitting for her wedding dress, you know, so. Wow. Congratulations. So, so thank you. So but but for me to hear my wife complain that. I'm going to miss the start of the game, you know, because I got to go, you know, pick wedding dresses. It's like, I thought you didn't care about this stuff, but there's something about this game that has piqued her interest, whatever it may be. So, um, so yeah, I expect that's a long winded way of saying, I expect the numbers to be big. That sounds like an advertisement, like, you know, for uh, like a Doritos or something where like, you know, your wife is going to a wedding dress fitting and is like, eh, I'd rather be watching the game. (laughs) <laughs> She's, she is absolutely if she ever hears that i said this um i may be I'll send, I'll send it i'll send it to her i desperate i'm always desperate for downloads i know i may be single to- again <laughs> <laughs> all right jane jane i first of all i'm proud of you jane for not contractually uh sending me your terms here to make you uh have more time than jim and also being the last person to talk on this podcast so i will uh 
I will let you have the final word on this. Uh, again, as someone, all of us are NFL watchers, but like the reality is, as Jim said, like it, it's the league is almost bulletproof, and that there's really nothing that can nothing. The league can essentially do nothing. I, that's, I, let me rephrase that. There is nothing that can happen in the NFL where people will not go back to continue to watch the NFL. It's bulletproof in that way. I, I, first of all, before Jane goes, I don't know that I agree necessarily with that. Really? I, yes. The I, numbers, the numbers, the numbers say otherwise, Jim. I, I mean, it's no, I, fifty million people watching the conference championship. I get that, but when we have issues as serious as domestic violence and the, and the way that the league handled that, and things like that crop up, and I don't know what's going to come out of the Flores suit. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not so willing to say that that it's it's completely Teflon. I think. I think when you have specific instances, for instance, let me say this. If the investigation, the report from the Washington football team ever gets released and we see and, 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 and the things that are alleged go deeper, much deeper than anything we might imagine, I think it could have a tremendous impact, not just on the viewer, but also on the sponsor. It's interesting. Listen, I'm not I am I am obviously not discounting the seriousness of everything you just said. Correct. And I I agree with you that like that should be the response. I have just become I don't know if the word is cynical or realist that whatever it is about this game, whether it's just that it's a perfect television game, the violent aspect of the game, the gambling part of the game. I, I have not seen evidence of people leaving the game, including all of the people five, 10 years ago who said that uh, the decline in high school participation, Pop Warner participation is going to change the demographics of who watches. I just, I, 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 again, this is just doesn't mean I'm right. I think it is too intrinsically part of the American psyche for that to happen. But I, I, I can see that I don't know what would happen given what you just said, Jim. What about you, Jane? What do you? It's. I think we've probably talked about this before, Jane. It's a really interesting topic of whether there are things that would turn the American public off to the sport. I'm going to be way cynical here and say that I don't think that there is anything um, that has to do with harassment of women or racism that would turn away viewership in large numbers. If there were, those viewers are already gone, and I think. Uh, you know, people who really care about that, unfortunately, it's not going to make a dent in the majority of viewers for this league. I think what could make a difference is if you find that, you know, somebody was paying players, that there was a, a structure, an informal structure that was corrupt, that, 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 uh, that led to different outcomes for games than what the play on the field would have led to. That might be something. But in terms of, of this year, and the viewership being up, like the playoffs were great. Awesome. Like there were great games. And I was sitting in the living room since we're telling family stories. I was sitting in the living room watching some games with my daughter and just and screaming like, you know, um, with uh, Mahomes and, and, you know, with that, like that battle toward the end. And and <laughs> and my daughter's like, see, the NFL pushes you away and reels you back in. <laughs> It's true. It's it's. It was, I mean, it, it was fun to watch. It is. It's again. It is. It really is. In many ways, a perfect television sport. It just from the from the seventeen eighteen games in the regular season to once a week to the ability to play 
uh, either fantasy football or to gamble on things that I think many, many millions of people can understand. Um, it's, it's unique in that way. All right. Let me give, uh, your resumes again, at least, I mean, Jane would take 20 minutes for you, but I'm going to just make it one sentence. <laughs> hey, Jim's joining me. He's, uh, he's coming to the dark side in academia. Well, hey. well, that's right. Jim, are you, where, where are you, are you teaching? Where are you teaching? I, I feel like, you, uh, well, I, I, I taught last fall at San Diego state. That's I taught right. One, one course and, um, we'll do it again next fall. So I'm not quite doing it, you know, as, as deeply as, Jane is so I'm just kind of putting my toe in the water but um I'm I'll say this and maybe I'm wrong for saying it publicly but man we are we are not doing the this next generation a, a service at least as I have seen it as it relates to well this there's this is why it'd be good to have a Jim Trotter in the classroom and as somebody who taught with Jay McManus for uh, many years. Uh, my God, God help those students. All right. Jim Trotter is a reporter for NFL media and you can see his byline as well as uh, hear him on uh, the NFL Network. He's one of, again, as I say many times every time he's on this podcast, one of my favorite colleagues at Sports Illustrated. I love working with the guy. Jay McMass, of course, one of my good friends, the director of Marist Center for Sports Communication, follow her work. And, um, you know, if you happen to be at Marist, feel free to just jump into her class. Um, she she loves to hear people talk. I mean, she loves to hear she loves to have people hear her talk is what I meant to say, Jane. Well, actually, I've listened to you talk so much, Richard. True. Obviously, know. You know, you're used to that. Uh, J- Jane, as always, you were Jordan and uh, and I was Horace Grant. I, I, I have no problems with that. All right. Jane and Jim, thank you very much. All right. You guys be well. Take care. All right. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, thank Jim. You. See ya. You got it. All right. As we move on from uh, from Jane and Jim, I am uh, pleased to be joined by Chris Herring. He's a Sports Illustrated senior writer, and boy, this sure this sounds good to him. New York Times best-selling author of Blood in the Garden: The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. Chris, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you, man. You got it. So, Chris, listen, I. I lived in New York during this time. So like I understand the connection that fans have to the Ewing, Starks, Oakley, those teams. What I'm interested from your perspective as someone who decided to delve into this was, did you think that, I mean, clearly you did. And clearly the answer is there was, but what convinced you that there would be an audience for a book like this, let's say beyond New York and beyond, beyond like the diehard Nick fan. I, I think th- there's two things. One, um, if ever there was a team that a lot of people didn't like, uh, I think the Bad Boys Pistons were certainly up there and they've been documented at length. But I think it's teams that tend to be like those Knicks were, where um, you had people that hated them. Uh, certainly where I live here in Chicago, where I grew up in Chicago, um, you certainly have a, a faction of people in Indiana, a faction of people in Miami. And I think that's what you want. You you You, you don't want for there to only be the fan base of people that like the team that you're writing about. You want there to be teams and people that hated those teams as well. So um, there's no shortage of people that really disliked the way those Knicks played basketball um, that disliked John Starks. You know, I had a, someone create a book trailer for me, kind of a movie trailer essentially for the book. And it was essentially two and a half, three and a half minutes of them just knocking people to the floor repeatedly. And so there were, there were no short, there was no shortage of people that disliked, those teams. So 
you would rather have people be passionate one way or the other about them than indifferent. And so there were certainly groups of people that felt that way. And the other thing is that there, if you're writing about one fan base and one team that has a huge fan base, it's the Knicks and, you know, the Knicks, the Lakers, the Yankees, those types of teams. And so, um, and obviously the bulls come to mind as well, but um, the Knicks don't have a small fan base of their own. And so it was funny when we were pitching the book and proposing the book, um, the word regional kept being used as far as publishers wanting to try to, to cap the amount of money that they're going to spend on the bids and everything. And I can understand that it is a regional team, but it's also a team with a lot of reach. I, I did a podcast yesterday with Brazilian Nick fans that, you know, that had me on their podcast and I've done ones with French Nick fans and people in Australia are begging me, asking me to try to figure out how they can get the book sooner without paying, you know, $8 million in shipping charges from buying it from Amazon in the States. So there, there's really no shortage of Knicks fans. So I wasn't ever worried about that. I think it was trying to show the concept that it was more than just a New York audience. Uh, and I think there was one because there's a lot of, there were a lot of rivalries and uh, the Knicks changed a lot about basketball. And I think that's kind of the part that maybe goes unseen or maybe is unknown about this team. So th- this is sort of interesting to me as a New Yorker. I don't live in New York at the moment, but I, I will always consider myself a New Yorker because I'll probably will have lived in New York the longest stretch of my life um, re- against any other city unless I live in Toronto now for another, whatever, 20 years or so. But um, the, So here's the interesting thing about that team in New York in general to me, Chris. The Knick fan, the Knick fan, certainly the lower section, it is very corporate. There is a lot of money at Madison Square Garden. You obviously have seen Celebrity Row and you see Spike Lee and models and uh, you know to nowadays it's pete davidson or whatever new star is around there okay so like the the knicks have a celebrity wealth component to them absolutely it's new york city look at where madison square garden is located etc that said the the most popular nick players generally speaking of all time are guys like oakley and mason and you can go back to um uh you know to even others uh prior to them like Guys who were like hard-nosed rebounders who hustled, who got a lot of like the uh, stats that, you know, coaches keep, as you know, like the the hustle stats that we not, don't necessarily ever see. That dichotomy has always been fascinating to me in that um, someone who's like a, I'm trying to use a, like I'm not saying like a Vince Carter wouldn't be popular in New York, but he would not be more popular than Charles Oakley. And that's always interesting to me because you would think that Vince Carter would represent New York, you know, because of, sort of the glitz and glamour of New York. And I wonder again, because you wrote about the team that to me epitomized like the grit and grind in New York. Um, why you think that is? Why Oakley Mason and some of these other guys became such cult cult figures? I think it's a fantastic question. I think you're right. And I think even where I live in Chicago, uh, those Derek Rose, Tom Thibodeau teams with Joakim Noah and, and players like that, Taj Gibson, they resonate differently. Um, I think there's a couple things at play. One is, um, you know, if you go back and watch this starting lineup introductions from the 1990s, uh, you see so many people coming straight from Wall Street in their suits sitting courtside. Like you said, not even just sitting courtside, but in the, you know, the first level of the arena. But I still think, you know, when you think of New York, that's the majority of the wealth and where it comes from and, you know, the financial industry. But there's still more people that are just working class people that live in New York, Staten Island, around the city. Um, and there's way more of those people, whether they're in the arena or not. Um, people were telling me that they remember certain games and just walking outside and just seeing groups of people huddled around like 
a television that was plugged into something outside um, during the 90s. It was just a, a different time. But you have a lot of people that either are working class or a lot of people that still think of themselves that way. And I think like to feel like they can have a team that represents that underdog mentality. The Knicks, you know, spent more money than anybody, but during those years, they certainly were not the most talented team. So there was something to the idea of John Starks having bagged groceries at Safeway a few years before he joined the Knicks. There was something to Anthony Mason being from New York City and having been a guy that only played two years of high school basketball that had to play in multiple countries before he could make the NBA. There was something to Charles Oakley basically being told by his high school basketball coach that he wasn't physical enough and that he had to go play football or else his basketball coach was not going to allow him to come back to the basketball team. And, you know, obviously he played a lot of football on the court eventually as well. Um, But there was something to be said for that. This was a team that had Pat Riley as their coach. But I think what was unknown about Pat at the time is that he tended further in that direction more toward like a scrappy, physical, tough-minded Because that's that's how he played, as opposed to Magic playing like Magic and Worthy and that and the the great teams he coached in L.A. Exactly that, and and even with those teams, I think he wanted them to be that way in L.A. But look at how they were built. I mean, they had so much offense and they had so much talent that you know, like that was always going to overshadow the defensive stuff that he was telling them. So so yeah, I mean, that was the image that he built that team in. They had one star and one blue chipper in Patrick who had, was rough around the edges in his own way, I think, as it related to the media and, and stuff like that. He dealt with a ton of racism in Boston and at Georgetown. But, I mean, this was a team that was scrappy. It was going to claw and fight. And and I will say this. Here in Chicago, it's true, but also just in the Northeast, Philly, New York, Boston, people love those sorts of teams. I'm Buffalo. I, you know, I, I know that you know that. People love those sorts of teams, and it's always been like that. So, I, you know, I... It doesn't stun me, but it is interesting because there is that dichotomy where there's so much money in New York, but there's still way more people that don't have that kind of money in New York as well. One of the things that I always think about with this Knicks team, um, and I'm sure that uh, um, you do as well, and, and as you sort of process this with your book, is how the how they would have been thought of historically had they won one championship, had they beaten the Rockets in that series, which they certainly could have. I mean, they literally... I don't want to put it on Starks, but like there's literally like that game really could have flipped very, very quickly. And the Knicks could have been uh, the NBA champions. I, I, I'm curious how you think we would look at that, that era of Knicks basketball differently with one title, as opposed to being the team that um, when Jordan was away, got beat by the Rockets. You're totally right. Um, One other person's asked me that. And I think it's like a fascinating question. One, I don't think they're as interesting if they win. Uh, I know the fans the fans would 100%. be much happier, if yep. they had, but they absolutely are not as interesting. I, I think, um, you know, like I think it's there's something to be said for the fact that up until the last dance, the most watched documentary um, with ESPN had been the Fab Five one, the 30 for 30 had been the most watched. I think that we have a natural fascination with people, the, the, the Bills being an example um, the Fab Five being an example of teams that don't quite get there. And I think for me, the way I describe them in this book, the Knicks, is that they were kind of the Forrest Gump of that era. When you think about the OJ Chase and you think about all the run-ins with Michael and you think about Spike Lee's interactions with, with Reggie Miller, you think about what might have been the most fiery rivalry during the late part of the 90s, maybe not the, the most important as far as it related to winning championships, but just the most fiery one. 
the Knicks fans hated Pat Riley after he left the way he did. And they played against the Miami Heat four years in a row. Every one of those series went the distance. In one case, the Knicks beat them, and it was an eight seed beating a one seed to make it to the finals. That, I mean, the, the Knicks were always in the picture somehow. Always. Uh, fights, um, close games, close series, Charles Smith, Reggie Miller. They were always in the picture, but I, the way I describe it, they were never really the focal point of the picture, certainly as it related to Michael Jordan. And so I think to me, they were always in the picture, but the fact that they were never the focal point that they never won the whole thing makes them more compelling to me. And to me, you know, as you talk about the nineties, you can't talk about that era without understanding who those Knicks were and how they fundamentally changed basketball. Because I don't think you get the beautiful skilled spaced out game that you have now without those Knicks then because the league wanted nothing to do with the way that team played basketball. They did not want Michael Jordan, you know, getting season ending injuries because the team was trying to take him out of the sky. And they basically made that known. They changed all sorts of rules. Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 teams did in 1993. They were not going to stand for that anymore. And I think that um, you, you fundamentally get a better understanding of how much the league shifted and why it shifted. When you look at those Knicks teams and, and you, you talk about television ratings, plenty the ratings were astronomically, well, I guess not astronomical. They were extremely low when, when Michael Jordan left the game and the Knicks were the team that was in the finals right after that. They, they made the finals each of the first two times Michael retired, the Knicks replaced the Bulls as the team that made it to the finals. So they were right next in line, but you know the interest in them was a lot different than the Bulls because a lot of people did not want to watch sloppy, muddy basketball. Yeah, you can draw a direct line between the Pistons and the Knicks and, and I think Steph Curry and how the where the league sort of has evolved um, from where it was. I, that's a great point by you. All right, a couple more things here. Uh, Chris, we're in the middle of sort of trade deadline week uh, in the NBA. Actually, right before we got on the air, CJ McCallum was traded from the Blazers. As someone who's covered the league for a long time, what's it like to be a reporter this week? Um, and... You know, it's obviously very in the in the NBA. Like I imagine, transactionally, it's hard to beat Adrian Wojnarowski or uh, or or Shams uh, Sharnaya from uh, my place at the Athletic. But you know, there's a lot of trades that happen this week. They not all of them are like monster ones. And so, for you, are you like, um, are you you're probably monitoring like you know Twitter and all these other places? But like, do you make calls to league people? Like, what? Just I get a curious sense. Like, I know you're not as, you're not a transaction breaker, so to speak, but you're in the mix. So what's it like to be in the mix during this week? Yeah, no, you just try to keep your phone close because even if you're not in touch, you know, every minute, every hour, I, I imagine it has to be a really stressful week. If you're a member of Woj's family or something like that, uh, <laughs> that you really right, can't yeah. be on the phone with them for very long, uh, unless it's a true emergency, but yeah, I mean, you, you have to stay close to your phone. You, you can't make too many plans. It's difficult for me. Like this week, I, um, my aunt in Los Angeles is having uh, a round of chemo and I really, really oh, man. want, she started, thank her. you. She started this process the week my book came out and I felt awful that I couldn't be there with her. I had a, I think the night that she was getting ready for chemo, the first round, I had an event with Spike Lee the night before that. And I was like, I can't break this. Um, to, to be there, but I, you know, my heart was with her and I felt horrible that I couldn't be there. So this is my first opportunity to truly be there with her for this process. That's on Thursday, which is like, as we were saying, is a pretty important day in the NBA calendar. It's difficult. So I'm going to like have my phone next to me because I know that I'm going to get looped into stuff. Um, 
if something massive happens, we've also had years where there are duds where you kind of feel like, man, I, you know, I set my whole schedule aside for this and then nothing happened, you know, or it's very small scale stuff. CJ McCollum is a, is a pretty big name and the NBA. I'm curious to see whether there will be bigger ones, but I do also feel like fans kind of get disappointed if the fireworks start a couple days early like this with CJ McCollum. And then if there's not a big trade that comes after, like if Thursday comes and goes, and this was the biggest thing that happened, I think people will be a little bit disappointed, but um, it's a weird time because you do have to basically try to set aside the time, but your life still goes on. And there's certain things that really don't wait for you for the trade deadline to be over. So it's, it's difficult. I can't imagine how difficult it is for Shams or for, for Woj, Mark Stein, those folks, because I imagine they just have to be left alone to some extent. It's not quite that bad for me, but still I, I need to be kind of at the ready as far as writing something. If something big happens. Last one. Uh, and, but it's a, but it's a bit of a, uh, extended question here and you're very uniquely positioned because of all the places you've worked uh you work at sports illustrated now you've previously worked at espn you worked at 538 you worked at the wall street journal and then even within espn chris you've worked at a sort of a couple different uh silos within espn i'm curious because i don't know many people i'm not sure i know any anyone else who's worked at all of those different places and i wonder for you like sort of how similar are each to work at and then how different are each to work at? Cause you've really, for, for a pretty young dude, you you've worked at a lot of very well-known uh, legacy outlets at this point. Yeah. I, I guess it's funny. I think about that sometimes, but not that often really Richard, the, the thing that I think is most different, um, you know, cause when I came into the game is at the wall street journal, I was covering law at first before I moved over to the sports side. Um, so that was kind of different for me. I, I, uh, when I was at the University of Michigan, I was the news editor for a year. But other than that, you know, all my internships and sports internships, I think the biggest difference for me now, and I really hadn't thought about it this way until I was signing on to take the gig at Sports Illustrated. This is the first time I've covered sports like entirely at a place that was like a sports focused outlet. Um, because when I was with ESPN, I had like a half and half contract where I would do work for them and for 538, which obviously is numbers oriented, but also kind of more politics focused. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, you know, God bless him, Sam Walker, my, my sports editor there at the time, had a dinner with me. We were actually in London. The Knicks had a game against the Bucks. Um, and some of my editors from the Wall Street Journal were going over because I think they were hosting a talk that Adam Silver was going to speak at um, and a couple other people, the, the Bucks owner. And had a, a really great dinner with Sam, my, my boss. And I told him at one point, you know, ESPN had offered me a job to cover the San Antonio Spurs. And I, I guess it's probably somewhat rare in the industry to not even take that offer to your higher ups at your job to say, like, I've been offered this. Are you going to give me a raise or should I start packing my bags? I wasn't particularly interested in going to go live in San Antonio. So I didn't even raise that with my bosses. And Sam was kind of taken aback. He's like, you got an offer from ESPN and did not even mention it. Like, you're not like you weren't looking to bleed us. And I said, well, no, because I don't, I don't really I'm not really interested in creating a bluff that I'm not actually going to follow through on. Like, I'm, you know, and also I'm covering the Knicks in New York. Like, this is a wonderful job. It's going to take a lot for me to leave it. And so Sam, bless him, seriously, because it was a really it was something I kind of take to heart now. He basically said, Chris, like, I, first of all, we love you for not looking to just kind of bleed us and, and nickel and dime us every opportunity you get. But secondly, you're a smart kid. You work really hard. You've been extremely successful on this beat. Like we've seen our subscriptions go up because of you. 
like in a very easy to mark way where we're looking at when people subscribe, what the story they were looking at right before this was. And, you know, a good 50, 60% of our subscriptions have been like your Knicks coverage, which was really flattering to hear that. But basically what he says, like, Chris, I'm telling you this as your boss, but also as a friend of yours, someone that I'd like to think is as a friend of yours, we're not going to be able to keep you forever because kind of the way the wall street journal does business for the most part, maybe with one exception, um, it's a finance politics focused paper. Sports is something that we do. And I think we do really well, but it's also something that we do. We have to do differently because we know people aren't picking up our paper because of sports. He was like, you're kind of one of the exceptions with that is that we're, we're drawing in some new readers because of you, but if you did what you do and you were covering finance or politics at this paper, the paper would make it a point to never let you out of their site. But because you're covering sports, there's going to reach a point where like other places are going to come after you and they're going to fundamentally be able to pay you a lot more. And so I don't want you to pass up opportunities, particularly without telling us that you're getting them um, just out of hand without even mentioning it, because there's going to come a day where we can't afford to keep you. And I know that, and I'm, I hope that we can, but I also like for your betterment, I don't want you to pass up opportunities that are better uh, for way, way more money. And and eventually that did happen. But um, so now, you know, I've noticed now at Sports Illustrated, particularly like this is the first time I'm at a shop where it's just sports. And uh, that part of it is different for me because I have interests beyond just sports and telling stories that delve into more than just sports. Um, but, you know, I'm really grateful that somebody would tell me that at that point but they are much different places. And, um, you know, I, I remember being at 538 one time, probably the funniest thing. I had a, a story that was running that ESPN, the magazine really wanted. Um, but I worked at 538 too. And I was like, well, who's, who do I give the story to? It was about why Kevin Durant's shoes fall off so often. Oh, and I went back idea. and actually, thank Love you. That. I went back and actually found a way to track each time his shoe had fallen off over a three-year span. I came up with 35 instances. And it came out to once every eight games. And I, it became a story about why his shoe fell off so often. Um, and I got to the bottom. I talked to him. I talked to people that he went to college with and everything else. It was a really fun story. But I remember being asked by one of the graphics people, what's the 538 angle for this story? I was like, <laughs> I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm a reporter. Like, I'm just trying to tell good stories. Please find a way to make that right. work within our universe of numbers. Like, it shouldn't right. be that. Like, don't. Don't ask me that question as I'm being begged by the magazine people at ESPN to run the story with them instead. So um, you do get weird competing things sometimes from the different places, but it's uh, I've been really grateful and really fortunate to kind of have it play out the way it has. Yeah, it should have been, you know, what's Durant's current approval rating in, in, <laughs> in Texas or something like that. There's your 538. Right. Uh, Chris, I cannot believe uh, the first time I ever met you, you were a college student in Michigan and now you've, uh, um, You've gone on to like uh, what's really been a, a, a fantastic career, man. So I'm really, really happy for your success. And uh, and I remember grabbing a coffee with you in in, in Ann Arbor when I uh, when I did my one year uh, fellowship there. And uh, it's cool to see. There's a number of you guys who are at the Michigan Daily who've gone on to do uh, um, really great things in the business. So um, so it's very cool. Thank you so much for having me. I remember that very vividly. And. Uh a really fond time in my life and uh and on how cool it was that we were blessed to have you guys there kind of as in the residency program the fellowship program 
to just be able to grab coffee with you guys. It's a weird program where we don't, don't Chris, don't Chris, don't go crazy. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's very nice of you to say. No, no, but, no. I'm completely uh, serious though. Cause it's, <laughs> it's something where we didn't have advisors working with us. We we're just these kids that I know, know the Michigan we Daily is an amazing, yeah. honestly, it's an amazing paper in that you guys really sort of did just stuff on your own. Um, and given the size and reputation of the paper, it, there should be like five faculty Absolutely. members like working with it. It's just like it's crazy to me. I mean, it's a legit, really good like publication in uh, in Ann Arbor. But yeah, you, yourself, Nicole Arbach, um, there's a number of people from like the uh, the era that, uh, or not the era, but the year that I was there, who've gone on to to do very cool stuff. Um, and so it's great to see. All right, Chris Herring. He's a Sports Illustrated senior writer, and his book is Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s Knicks. It's basically a definitive history of of how like Patrick Ewing, Pat Riley, Charles Oakley, um, Anthony Mason, and like how that team essentially resurrected the franchise, one, but two, really became an indelible part of the franchise. And the reason why like that team remains so fascinating is, and it's a perfect example, Chris, and you know this, look at the reaction that Charles Oakley got when he got removed from the garden and look how many people basically had his back. And the majority of Nick fans took his side over Dolan and the franchise. It just tells you how deep like the roots of that team sort of still exist. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that whole thing with him and now looking at where it is too, that, He's been pretty outspoken about Patrick Ewing the last yeah. several years. He's got years. a book out right he's, now with Frank Isola. He's got yeah. a book out, and yeah. it's incredible to see how many people I follow that are like, I can't buy that. I won't buy that because they are they view that whole thing as a family, and they, they view it as him in some ways, him speaking up and speaking his truth, I think, quite frankly, um, as tearing yeah. apart that family, and they, they you know don't want to buy the book or are frustrated by what they see coming out of the book. But yeah, but people... They very much viewed it as, as Oakley having everybody's back during that era. And um, exactly. and they, they feel that way just as strongly now where they were a lot like Anthony Mason. If you said something bad about those Knicks teams, they wanted to fight just like Mason did. So, uh, Yeah. I mean, again, if I'm picking somebody in my foxhole from the 1990s NBA, Charles Oakley's pretty high on that list. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really high on that list. Chris, man, listen, I don't even have to wish you success. The book's done great. Um, so I'm really happy to see it again. Blood in the Garden. The flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, follow Chris Herring on Twitter, where you can get all his stuff. And obviously, he'll be writing some interesting features at Sports Illustrated. The NBA season, as we uh, are about to the second half, is going to be really, really interesting. Man, the Eastern Conference is insane. Uh, there are so many teams that uh, uh, really you can make the argument have a legit chance actually to get out of there. Um, and great to see my Raptors, Chris, starting to turn it on. Keep your eye on them, Chris. I know you're not. I know you're. I know you don't downgrade the Raptors, but I'm telling you, seven or six in a row as we're taping this, um, they're sort of figuring it out. I'm not saying they're going to get win the East, but they're going to be a tough out for somebody. They've. I did a podcast with Zach Lowe right before the season, and the whole point of it was teams that you're higher on than everybody else, teams you're lower on, and we were right. supposed to discuss five each uh, of like lower, higher, and because we were running out of time with the pod, I only got to four. The Raptors were my fifth that I was much higher on than everybody else. Cause I saw some people picking them 12th in the East. And I was like, they always overachieve yeah, no. number one, but number two, always. they're going to be playing in their home country in their own stadium. Again, Finally, you know, guys are going to be healthier. They're not going to have the whole roster 
ravaged by COVID. You know, I didn't know that Fred Van Vliet was going to be an all-star, that Siakam was going to bounce back the way he has. Siakam turned around, yeah. And Scotty Barnes has been oh, my goodness. incredible just, for a first-year player. Yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah. I mean, again, they're probably not going to pull it off, but... You don't want to play him, though. They could figure out, if, they, if they could figure out a way to get Miles Turner without giving up the core, that that's the piece. Like, that's the... Ken Birch is a nice player, but he's really like a 15-minute player. Um, if they could get a five, like an athletic five... Like that's game changing. You don't want to play that team. Um, I, I guarantee you, you don't yeah. want to play them. Or anybody who could just—I'm not necessarily saying stop Embiid, but like impede him. That's they just—they don't have that player right now. And if they could find that, and I realize it's a bit of a unicorn. It's hard to find. Watch out for that group. That's the one sort of piece uh, uh, they're missing. Chris, thank you. Thank you for indulging my Raptors uh, talk at the end of this podcast. And best of success for the book. Uh, follow Chris Herring, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much, Richard. It's really good to talk with you again. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Jim Trotter and Jane McManus for their time and insight. And the same for Chris Herring. Best of luck uh, to him on his book, although his book's already a New York Times bestseller. So he has uh, luck as the residue of design. He's already there, so congrats to him. And uh, it's great to see Chris uh, doing so well, especially given that the first time I met him, he was a student at the University of Michigan. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch archive page. Prior to this one, we had a uh, long in-depth conversation with ESPN president of programming and original content, Burke Magnus, who took you inside under the hood on how deals get negotiated at ESPN and where ESPN is, um, is, uh, is what ESPN is thinking about regarding upcoming rights deals like the Big Ten and the NBA, F1, etc. So if you're in a business, I think you'll you'll dig that one. Prior to that, Troy Aikman of Fox Sports talking about where he is in uh, his broadcasting evolution and what he might want to do. Prior to that, Mike Golick and Jay Glazer definitely appreciated their time. And Jay Glazer talking about mental health. That's always an important topic and, uh, and a topic important to me. And then prior to that, the future of hockey reporting. Roundtable with Michael Farber, ESPN's Emily Kaplan, Pluto Shinzawa and Michael Russo, my colleagues at The Athletic. Head down um, the list in the archives page. Hopefully, you will find something uh, you'll find something you like. Again, I know I say this all the time. It's not bullshit. I'm just going to be very honest with you. Uh, please leave a five-star review if you like this podcast and a note. Uh, it does mean something. Uh, forget about like sort of what it means for the algorithm of, of, uh, of Apple and Spotify. Just like the people who work with me at Canis 13, they read that stuff. They care about that stuff. So uh, it does have value uh, there. I mean, I guess if you hate me, just rip the shit out of me. That's also legit, too. But I appreciate all the support. We've obviously been doing this, but we, I don't know why I'm using the royal we. I've been doing this podcast, uh, including at SI now, for five, six years. It is something I enjoy, and uh, and we'll see how long it lasts. Who knows? But, uh, but I appreciate uh, uh, people who have uh, stuck around for all those years through two uh, through two different stops. As always, thank you to Patrick Antonetti. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And mostly, thanks to you, the audience, for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.